Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks everyone for joining and we're going to get started. Unfortunately, Ellen Lord, our other panelist, she had a flight delay and so there's a lot of fog at TCA. So she'll be here probably at the last few minutes, but it was an act of fog. So what can we do? But before we get to our great guest, Mike, I'm first obliged here to mention that we had two reports at the George Mason Center for Government Contracting recently on the planning, programming, budgeting, execution system. It's a mouthful, PBBE. When you hear me say that, that's what we're talking about. But the first paper was really on pathways to defense budget reform. It took a look at the historical context and how the Department of Defense was run in just a radically different way in the 50s and before. And then I tried to trace that evolution of the structure of the budget and how we got to where we are today. The other paper, it's a more recent paper, it's uh, Execution Flexibility and Bridging the Valley of Death. That one's more about recommendations for the near term and translating some of those lessons into what we can do. And the tagline, I think there was, we don't need new laws to get this done. It's mostly, can the department at every level and Congress really agree on what needs to be done? Okay, that's enough of that. We're really here to hear from two leaders, one of which is with us. So luckily we have Mike Brown with us. He's a partner at Shield Capital now. And he's also a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. Just recently before that, he was the Director of Defense Innovation Unit. And he's had a long career in the commercial industry, including CEO of Symantec and many other things before that as well. Presidential Management Fellow as well. So Mike has a lot of experience and a lot of great views on this topic. So I'm really happy to have him. Thanks, Thanks Eric. Glad to be here. So the first one I want to get to is Congress has really started looking at this recently. And last year, they had some kind of like closed door meetings and sessions about PBBE. So we don't really know what they said. But Jack Reed, Senator Jack Reed, he came out and he said something to the effect of, wow, PBBE, this is the most boring process I've ever heard. But it's incredibly important. And so it has a real impact on force structure and warfighter capability. So how would you pitch this, or how would you explain why this topic is actually important? Yeah, well, it's critically important because all of us who've been in leadership positions know what happens in an organization follows the budget. You can't get anything done at the Pentagon or any other organization if you don't have manpower and dollars behind it. You can have the best national defense strategy, all the best intentions. If you're not following that up with the dollars, then the execution is not going to follow that strategy. It may be boring to talk about, but there's probably nothing more important to driving modernization of the force than making sure PAB&E allocates the right dollars to the right priorities within DOD. Unfortunately, because of a lot of history, and the PPB&E goes all the way back to Secretary McNamara, we've got a process that assumes we understand the future that we can even predict the future. Maybe that was the way Ford Motor Company thought about its production in the 1950s, that it was pretty predictable how many cars were gonna sell per year. We're in a vastly different world now, aren't we? I don't think anyone at the Defense Department or anywhere else would say we could predict the future. Ukraine blew a hole in that if you thought you could. 
So we have to react now to events around the world that can't be forecast, and we've got to be more agile. The last defense strategy called for that. Leave it up to you how well we're doing on becoming agile as an organization. A lot of room to go. But we really need to have a budgeting process that takes account of some flexibility to adapt to new things in the world that we couldn't have forecast. And that also speaks to the priorities could change quickly. So a process that takes three years to program a dollar of spending, that's what we're living with now when you add on continuing resolution, and very little flexibility because Congress allocates to 10,000 line items, that does not produce an agile organization. So I think it's how long we take to do the budgeting process and the fact that there's very little flexibility that creates some problems for us. Brought up the national defense strategy and was just taking a look at the 2022 National Defense Strategy just came out. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see it, but there was a key phrase in there, which was a fast follower strategy the department must take in order to adopt technologies like AIML and networking and, and a slew of other things. And I believe that term fast follower really came from you. And so it's cool that it's now in the part or in the National Defense Strategy, but can you talk about maybe the term wasn't from you, but the way that it's been adopted by the Department of Defense, you really led that charge. So can you talk a little bit about what does this term mean, where to come from, and how does it relate to what we're talking about here? Yeah, I, I certainly didn't coin the term. This is from industry and my experience as being a, a tech executive for so many years. A lot of companies in the tech world are trying to be first to market, and if you're not first to market, you want to be a fast follower. That's where it comes from because why would you want to be late with new technology? Unfortunately, this is a position the Department of Defense finds itself in. Why is that? If you go back 60 years or so, the Department of Defense was developing, along with prime contractors, a lot of the technology it needed and was reaching out to industry if, if it needed to. This is where Silicon Valley gets its name. The Defense Department created Silicon Valley because it needed miniaturized electronics at the time to miniaturize nuclear weapons and also the space program was, of course, a big consumer of early microelectronics. Fast forward to today, we're in a different world where my previous boss, Heidi Hsu, came out with 14 technologies to set important to national security. You'd recognize those. AI, cyber, autonomy, advanced computing, communications. Those are not being developed by the Defense Department. They're being developed by commercial industry. So in that 60 years, the world has changed from one where DOD was at the center of R&D. In 1960, DOD was responsible for one-third of global R&D. That's just a phenomenal statistic. One-third of what was happening in the world was happening at DOD. Today, that's 3%. So quantitatively, it's changed. We know qualitatively, it's changed. 80% of those technologies we need, ones I just mentioned, called for by Heidi Shu, they're being developed by the commercial industry. What kind of process do we have at DOD to reflect that change in the world. Unfortunately, those of us who've worked in the system know that far too much of the process is still being driven by the things that we are developing with primes, like an aircraft carrier or the F-35. So we're not adapting to fast follow the technologies that are being developed in the commercial world. So that's really the origin of fast follower. And I was delighted to see that uh, there's some recognition in the department that for commercial technology, not for directed energy and hypersonics, for commercial technology. Again, that's 80% of what we need. We need a different system, and it's got to fast follow what's happening in the commercial world. And we can talk about what that means if you want. Please. Okay. <laughs> well, that was easy. It's really so easy when you're the only panelist, isn't it? <laughs> 
really it's what would we need to change about a system that's based on programs of record. Programs of record, what is that? That's we take time to develop requirements. We're going to tell the market what we want to, to have built. Okay, F-35, it's a brand new fighter aircraft, doesn't exist in the commercial world. We need to provide input to the market on what we need. We take too long in that. F-35 took 20 years. So back to predicting the future. How could you possibly think you're going to predict what you need 20 years from now? If you told Silicon Valley you were doing that, they'd say, you're nuts. You're, you're, there's no way you're going to get that right. You're not going to get anything better those last 18 years of requirements. <laughs> Spend some time up front and learn to iterate. You've got to be agile. You've got to build something and then iterate on it. The way the US developed aircraft in the 1950s followed that model. Very quick succession of, of different models that we would build. And again, McNamara changed that, probably for good reasons in 1960, but ones that don't hold up now that we're in the 2020s. So program of record, after the requirements, then we're going to go through a competitive process, choose one vendor. The requirements don't change then. They're locked in stone or in concrete. And now we're going to award to one vendor the ability to produce that, and we might be buying it for 40 or 50 years. We could spend another session on how that should change. We need to have a much more open, competitive system rather than that for a program record. But for commercial items that we want to buy, that makes no sense whatsoever. So good news, we don't need requirements, so we should validate the need, and we don't need to tell the commercial market what to build. AI software, small drones, digital wearables like I'm wearing. We don't need to tell the market what to build, so we immediately save time. We don't need to go through a process we're going to select for 40 years. What we need is a fast assessment process so that we can refresh the technology at the rate the commercial market produces it. So that's a different range of motion. I call that capability of record, meaning we know we're going to need the capability. We're going to need small drones, AI software, cyber tools. It's not in question you're going to need that for the foreseeable future. So now we need the flexibility from Congress to allocate money for the capability, not a single vendor and requirement, but capability. And then the department has to decide who's going to lead in that effort, meaning one organization needs to take responsibility for assessing and refreshing that technology. Commercial technology is very different from ships. Ships we know are going for the Navy. It's pretty clear who should take responsibility. The Army, the Marines, they're not, or I'm sorry, the Army and the Air Force aren't saying, okay, we need to be in the process for deciding who's the best shipbuilder. But if you're talking about AI software or small drones, they apply to all the services and they all need them. It does not make sense to divide that up and have every service doing their own thing. We should name one executive agent, one lead organization that's going to say, and it doesn't be the same for all commercial technologies, but one for small drones, one for digital wearables be helpful to have one or two for software. So that organization could then take the responsibility for, with that allocated budget from Congress, a dedicated budget that keeps coming, we're not going to allocate that to one vendor. We're going to say, let's see what's in the best, best in the marketplace today. Recompete that at a rate that's consistent with how fast the commercial market gives you upgrades. For small drones, that's probably every 18 months. So that's the idea behind what you'd have to do to implement a fast follower strategy. It's all about introducing more competition in the marketplace and delivering to the force the most current technology. So I think we'd have a much better force, better value for taxpayers, and certainly give the warfighter better tools if we adopted that. Something that we could do for the commercial market that you can't do with things that are purely military. So I want to drill in and see how the budget actually affects this, uh, this capability of record and fast follower idea. 
And so is the vision here really, you have this capability of record, it basically has one funding line, therefore you can do multiple programs that each would have been their own stovepipe and you couldn't move money between them, so you're able to make those trade-offs. Is that the idea, really consolidate and allow for that flexibility at the lower levels? It totally is, and this corresponds with some activity that's happening in ANS right now to go to a more of a portfolio approach. This is what we had in our budget if you go back to 1960s. I understand that there was one line item for tactical aircraft. So you didn't have a congressional staffers telling the department, okay, we're gonna have this much of this aircraft, this much of another, and of course then we have the unintended consequence of Congress telling the department, here you're gonna buy more A-10s and maybe you don't want any more. So it really is giving the department a little more flexibility to make those trade-offs. You know you're gonna need the category tactical aircraft, but let's use what's the best available in the marketplace, what the Defense Department really thinks it needs, and get that fielded in the marketplace. One of the issues with our budgeting process is the incredible granularity that we have. It's so complex when the budget comes over and it's those 10,000 light items, no one person in the Defense Department really can understand the entirety of the budget. It's the same with the NDAA and 1,000 sections. When I was leading DIU after the NDAA gets passed, we had folks on staff, and DIU is a very small organization at DOD, going through combing that to look for the search to see what affects us. That's a crazy process. So rather than getting strategic direction from Congress, everyone knows these are the priorities that Congress is telling you. We're scanning the document of a thousand sections. We're looking through the budget of 10,000 line items. What affected us? Pretty tough to get a view of what the comprehensive whole, what is Congress telling us from that kind of process. So I think it's time to take a step up and not be working at that level of granularity, allow for more of a portfolio approach, more trade-offs to occur in the department. I think we'd be a lot better off with that system. And if you think about it, that borrows directly from how corporations do budgeting. ExxonMobil, Google, you take whatever the most complex organization in the world is today that you wanna pick on. Granted, DOD is bigger, but no one takes more than a year to do a budget and you would not have the granularity coming from your board of directors to tell the CEO, here's 10,000 line items, and don't you dare deviate from that if you see things changing in the world you operate in and you're trying to optimize, don't change anything. I heard you say before that the department needs to kind of collapse its, its timelines, right? Because there's a cycle time mismatch. It takes multiple years to get a budget. Green electronics and software is already on to the next thing. So you talked about, hey, can you get this down to one year? Does it make sense to target a metric of, hey, this just needs to be within a year or it's not working? Is, does that make sense or is there other things going on? I totally think it makes sense. I think if you were to say, what's the additional value we're receiving by that process taking two and a half to three years, I think it'd be pretty hard to argue that there's any more value in that. And frankly, if you set that as the goal and said we will be done in a year, then people would have to adjust their process the department would have to get its work done in half a year instead of a full year. Congress would have to do its job and get the hearings that they want to have in that second half of the year, and then you could pass the budget. The fact that Congress takes a full year from the time the president sends over the budget and then you've got continuing resolution, we all know that's dysfunctional. We're certainly not getting a benefit from that. In fact, there's been a lot of discussion from all levels of the department about how that wastes money because uh, for those who are in the department, you already know the problem with the continuing resolution. I get to spend it a fraction of last year's spending, and if I'm lucky enough to get an increase, you push that into the six months we have left. On average, the budget it gets passed in February, so it's six months late. 
I've got an increase, I've got to pack that all into six months because what? If you haven't spent it, I'm going to lose it. What kind of incentive is that? So that, uh, that just creates waste and inefficiency. I don't get to start on my new things until six months into the year. Now I'm trying to spend more than I probably should. We, we know that's not in the right direction. I frankly like to see for the department simplification of the use it or lose it. We shouldn't have that as a maxim. We should think about what needs to be funded across multiple years. I know the appropriators don't like that, but when we've got to be scaling up munitions as an example right now, doing things one year at a time makes no sense. And we need flexibility to adapt to whatever's happening around us so that we can take advantage of new technologies or new opportunities and save the taxpayer dollars instead of these wasteful mechanisms which use it or lose it does. Colors of money is another constraint that really creates a lot of difficulty. I don't even want to tell you the amount of time I spent in a very small organization at DOD trying to figure out what can I use this money for or that money for, and all that creates waste and inefficiency. You know, as we talk about giving some flexibility by using larger program elements to delegate some of that flexibility, we've seen Congress recently push back a little bit on that. The Senate Appropriations Report for 23, they said, let's hold off on some of these open-ended innovation funds. What we need are detailed, justified plans. And I think you're starting to see that not just across Congress, but even in some aspects of the Department of Defense, too, you see the middle tier of acquisition, right? It's a different authority, but people are struggling to understand, how do I measure this? How do I predict and control this? Because if that might spin off into a different capability, what is the acquisition program baseline, the cost, schedule, technical for the full life cycle? We love this full life cycle view. What's your view on that kind of, do we still need a life cycle cost estimate before you start prototyping within this world of a capability of record? There's a lot in that question. <laughs> so take your time. Yeah. I think one, we do need flexibility for the reasons already described. Appropriators don't like that because they view that as open-ended. Open-ended, it might be, but it doesn't mean it's a lack of transparency. We could be reporting back in whatever time frame Congress would like on how we're actually spending the money and come back and provide complete rationale for why we made the decisions we made. So I don't think transparency should be used, but you do need that flexibility for the reasons we talked about. You can't predict the future. I do empathize with the Congress and the fact that the department's budget is complex. And so if you look at the number of programs that exist, there's the AppFit program that just was passed this past year, Heidi Shoes, just the Raider program. And I've heard uh, appropriators say, I'm confused by all of this. So I think we in the department need to do a better job of explaining how do all these relate to one another and can we do any work in simplifying that. If you think about it at one level, one problem has created the other. The fact that we don't have flexibility means you have all these different programs that get created to try and create that flexibility, but you just get more granular buckets. And it would be better if you, if the department had the flexibility, then we wouldn't have to create so many of these different programs to suit each niche and each opportunity that comes up and then provide a rationale. I do also think that it's time for the department to take a look at how much we are investing in discovery versus deployment. And making a grand entrance is Ellen Lord. Good to see you. I so apologize American Airlines was not working with me this morning. In fact, you have very little control over whether DCA lifts for fog, right? Absolutely, but I also love it when they change schedules on me. However, we are resilient. We can do this. Welcome. We were talking a little bit about budgeting at the department, and I was just talking about the fact that I think we would benefit by a review of 
how much of our resources of the department are focused on long-term development, discovery, science, and what can be deployed in the next two or three years. So at the department, back to the time when we developed a lot of the technology we needed, we'll put together long-term programs. I'm a big believer in that, what DARPA does, what we do to develop major weapons programs. But on average, that takes nine to 26 years to bring capability in the department. Okay, let's put that in one bucket. I think we're over-invested there, and we're not spending nearly enough on what could be helping Indo-PACOM in the next two or three years if we were called to fight there. The president asked the department to defend Taiwan. You picked the scenario. There's not as much energy on what could we ramp quickly. So I think if we did that, we'd put more balance into modernizing the force because there's things only we can do with the next generation fighter and Columbia class submarines, but there's a lot we can do, and Ukraine shows us this, with small drones, sensors in space, the SAR imagery that told us what was going on in Ukraine, to know Putin was a liar about invading Ukraine, and the intelligence community called that. There's so many things that are being developed commercially that could help us modernize the force, and there's not enough energy on making that happen, in my view. Absolutely. I'm concerned we are putting so much money, U.S. government money, into research and development where the greatest portion of innovation is being done in the commercial sector. And it's different than 50, 60 years ago. So we need to leverage that commercial capacity, bring it in very quickly, and then build capacity and capability within our industrial base. So I'd like to see more DOD money going into contracts and actually getting the production lines going. Because frankly, if there's a clear demand signal, industry will respond to that, put their internal research and development, invest capital in what we need when the demand signal is clear, but then DOD should be buying things, basically, whether they be products or services. And we see that Ukraine has really been an inflection point for technology on the battlefield. And we see that quantity has a quality all of its own. We talked about drones. When you have a 1,000 of them going out, that's almost a self-healing network right there. And we see what we can do with commercial satellite imagery. What we need to do in the government is stimulate those production lines to get going. Yeah, it seems like there's been something of a prototyping fatigue, potentially, right? The Budget Activity 6.4, the prototyping account, really got beefed up in the 2016 to 18 timeframe. But there's, when we look historically, right, the procurement to RDT&E ratio was like $2.5 for every $1 of RDT&E, and now it's almost one-to-one. Right, which is crazy because what we do is we know it's a choice for companies for industry, private industry, to choose to do national security work. It's a choice to do it. Now, when they go and put their own dollars in to go and develop capability, demonstrate it, participate in exercises, often just with a crater or something like that's de minimis in terms of funding, then perhaps they get a couple sivers. The question is, how do they maintain their workforce, their facilities, if they're told, just hang on, 18 months or so, we'll get you a contract there. It doesn't work that way, and that's why people deselect. And unfortunately, that's why 
the only stability we have is in the large primes, who we definitely need, but we know the innovation's not happening there, and they're the ones that were structured around all this lumpiness and have these huge wrap rates so they can have these standing armies in the background. That doesn't work for small companies that are trying to make payroll and have investors who want to see a return on that investment. So we need to flip it around a little bit and start handing out contracts yeah, I th for I think, production. I think what uh, Ellen's referring to is this big mismatch between the government time frames and what in a venture-backed startup, which is all about time and cash flow. The DOD, we don't have that kind of constraint, so we may not be as sensitive to it, but if we want to be working with those companies, and again, they have those 11 of the 14 technologies that we need, the AI, the cyber tools, the autonomy, then we have to adapt and be attractive to those companies based on the incentives they have from their venture investors. Absolutely, and I think it can be encapsulated in the fact that the pace of innovation is far outstripping the pace of business practices within DOD. And the challenge and opportunity here is that I don't believe it's Congress really holding DOD up at this point. There's a whole question about transparency and accountability that we can get into with the PPBE cycle and so forth. However, the authorities are, there. they've been translated into policy and implementation guidance but it takes managerial courage and leadership to put those into play. And right now, I believe we're not seeing the leadership we need to really utilize those authorities, and we're not training the acquisition workforce on the art of the possible. And over time, because we tend to publicize our failures, instead of failing fast and moving on, we really make a large production out of failures. So our acquisition workforce is incredibly risk averse. There is no reward for really leaning forward and taking risks. So we only do it in small areas. At DIU, we could do it. At SOCOM, they could do it. How do you scale that and get it to the scale DOD needs? Yeah, some of that, I think that what you're just talking about gets right down to execution flexibility. And I think, Ellen, your time at ATNL, you've done a, you did a great job of delegating, right? A lot of the major defense programs were delegated down to services, the smaller programs down to the PEOs. And I think what we're trying to say here is there's something similar that needs to happen in terms of funding and flexibility such that delegation allows them to move at speed and make the trade-offs in the year of execution. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So reprogramming thresholds have not changed in the last 10 years. A lot of other things, such as inflation, have changed dramatically in the last 10 years. So that flexibility is difficult. When you have one-year money, just even for MILPERS, and you're trying to PCS people, and they can't get moved in the year they need, it's, it's a problem. So it's not only in RDT&E, in procurement, in O&M, but it's in a lot of these other accounts. So what there's a lot of discussion about, and this is part of what the pl Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution, or PPBE Commission that I'm on, is looking at and doing listening tours to try to understand the art of the possible. The challenge is you have a dynamic here between flexibility and agility on the part of DOD and Congress 
taking their role very seriously, as they should, in terms of transparency and accountability. And so PBE is where all these grand strategic visions come clashing into reality of what can you make happen. And that, that's a challenge, but where there is a lot of momentum right now, I would say, is talking to Congress about opening up some of those thresholds. But however, in the building, in DOD, having leadership delegate and allow PEOs to do a lot more and not wait for five reviews at different levels coming up. So there is, in my opinion, a large hidden factory in the department just through all the review cycles. Everyone thinks that the rapid capabilities offices have all these special authorities. They have zero special authorities. Some of the most motivated, talented individuals that are totally committed to the mission go to the RCOs and then they get access to leadership to quickly have decisions made. The challenge is how do you scale that? And in order to scale that, you're going to have to delegate more, which means risk-taking. However, I'm not sure we really have a choice here. I think we have to. Mike, did you have anything on that? One of the questions here was in a previous panel, we talked about a lack of trust in our employees, the not giving them the tools, giving them a sense of purpose, and then empowering them to go actually execute and make us like surprised and proud. Can you talk a little bit about that feeling or like, how, do, how does the workforce feel about this? Yeah, I think one of the underappreciated, underappreciated assets that we have is people, really talented, dedicated people. And I had my own biased view before I came into government because I spent my whole life in the private sector. And I'm happy to tell you that a lot of those preconceptions were shattered with the talent that we have. People want to do the right thing. They want to drive change. They want to support the mission. But they're hamstrung by rules that have been in place for a long time, things like colors of money, use it or lose it that we talked about before. And Ellen's right, leadership that was willing to lean forward and have us take some risk. I remember hearing uh, John Hyten talk when he was vice chairman, that when he started in his career, he was able to work on, I don't remember what he was talking about, something in the Air Force, a big program when he was a major and had responsibility for tens of millions of dollars. He said that would never happen today. He was given that opportunity to make some mistakes and drive some impact. So we've become more risk averse over time. Some of that's because Congress is exercising oversight and people don't want to get into trouble. Some of it is we don't have the incentives in place. If I'm a young major and I had responsibility for a program, what incentives do I get? There's an incentive to keep the status quo because I'm not going to get my head chopped off. But it would be great if we were able to think about what incentives I might have in a program office to go look at a commercial capability that might save us money. If that major saves the taxpayer dollars, there's no real incentive. I might get a pat on the back, but that group he's working with doesn't get to keep any of that money. In the private sector, if I went as a VP of marketing to the CEO and said, okay, I'm going to save 10 or $20 million, I might get to keep some of that to redeploy that and make my marketing department more effective. We don't have anything like that. I'd be interested to get Ellen's perspective on this, but the incentives that would motivate people to take a little more risk and save money and maybe bring better capability, how does that accrue to the organization I'm working for? Those kind of incentives would drive the behavior because the talent is there. Yeah, I think it's a challenge and I think luckily the majority of the individuals that serve in government are incredibly invested in the mission 
and where they want to make a fair salary and get compensated so their families can have a nice quality of life. It's not as much about how much bonus money they're taking home at the end of the year. Right. I think it's a feeling of accomplishment that they can see what they have done, what their efforts have led to in terms of fielding something downrange, because that's what it's all about. What are our gaps in terms of war, war fighting, and what can we do to widen the overmatch we have against our strategic adversaries? But I also think that the department and Congress could do a whole lot more in terms of recognizing those who actually are excelling, who are showing the managerial courage, who are showing the leadership, who are taking smart risks. Right now, there's no incentive to take risk. And I think we need to call that out. We always talk to staffers on the Hill. Why don't you have a panel, a hearing on all these great things that happen? The reality is there are only so many hearings you can have in a certain amount of time, and there are a whole lot of really huge issues you have to do. So I think, again, a lot of this is a leadership issue. The whole system is constrained in terms of not really moving at the speed of relevance to make decisions all along the way. And our systems are all gauged towards a very complex procurements, all the way from the planning and the programming and the budgeting to the actual execution and the procurements for very large systems. So there's a reason to go through a large requirements process when you have a multi-billion dollar procurement and it's going to take many years to build and it will be around for 20, 30, 40 years and so forth. That's not the same for software. That's not the same for little systems. And our system our overall, I think, DOD system has not fundamentally ingested the fact that our systems now are really hardware-enabled, yet software-defined. Mm -hmm. And frankly, hardware is becoming much more of a commodity. It's going to be around for a long time. And that software needs to be refreshed on a very quick basis because we have the capability to do it. If you're doing software correctly, you're developing, producing, and sustaining all in one quick cycle. Yet we have very few ways to quickly buy software like that, although there are Pathfinder projects with colorless money, as it's called, BA8. But what I concerned about is I'm not sure that DOD is totally embracing the opportunity to use and exercise those Pathfinder projects and to talk about them to the Hill in terms of what they've done. So without that feedback, it's going to be hard. So this hidden factory inside of DOD I think needs to become a little bit more transparent and there needs to be more communication between DOD and the Hill because there's a huge lack of trust. But none of that can happen until you delegate down because physics are just against everything bubbling up with so much oversight and review, especially when it's paper crawling around desks versus being done digitally. So I'll give a couple stats here. For FY22, the RDT and E program elements half of them, so over 500 about, were under $30 million, and 25% were under $10 million. Procurement looks very much the same. Again, these are programmed for multiple years out. Despite this specificity, DOD only managed 3% total reprogramming in FY20 for RDT&E. So that's 
above threshold reprogramming plus below threshold reprogramming. And again, that's, so you, we've tightly specified, and then there's not a lot of flex on the back end to do anything with it. Any reactions just to that? I think it shows that the system is broken, frankly, and reprogramming, let's be honest about it, with the wall and everything has gotten incredibly difficult because it's become so highly politicized. So I think we need to look at a system that treats those small procurements very differently. Congress has to understand the data behind what we're saying right here. And then the building has to figure out how to responsibly delegate that authority and frankly, manage it through the data. Do what industry does. You roll up the numbers every week. If you're a program manager and you see who's charging what and what's come in, then monthly you do a deep dive into it and you live by those numbers. Unfortunately, right now, we have so many federated systems in DOD that it's very hard to get meaningful numbers in terms of, on a monthly basis, budget, actual, does, and so forth. So I think we need to go to a much more data-driven system with a lot more delegation. So no, no surprise, I agree with Ellen on this point. It's interesting, what would you conclude from the data that you just shared? Would you conclude that there's not really a need for reprogramming from that? Because nothing could be further from the truth. What I see from my time in the department is the culture is you will not go forward with any reprogramming requests, kind of what Ellen said a minute ago, it's become so political. Something would have to rise to an incredible threshold to be worth the amount of effort to reprogram. So DIU, you'd imagine we're seeing change in priorities and new opportunities for technology all the time. We'd have been a huge consumer of reprogrammer, a big user of that system. We never, in the six years I was at DIU, went through the reprogramming route because it's so laborious. And it's, it and doesn't move at a relevant pace. So the key is, one, the thresholds are so low, they haven't gone up in the last 10 years, so you don't have that much movement, so you can debate endlessly over what should get reprogrammed and what shouldn't. But we need more flexibility in the year of execution, and that gets to the concept of, gee, instead of having so many discrete PEs, could you broaden that a little bit and have capability elements? It's interesting, I was talking to Ellen Palakowski, retired General Palakowski, the other day, and that was tried a number of years ago, and the thought was it was abused by the department, so Congress said no more of that, which you understand the way behaviors go. I will say I think NRO has a pretty good system, and it's a smaller scale effort, but I think we can learn from what works and try to judiciously apply it, and we've got to be willing to get out there and experiment with some of this because the reality is we're debating these business issues while the Chinese are out there shooting hypersonic missiles around the world. I want to give you some reactions of what I've heard from like oversight officials. They will say something like, we've given you these types of authorities in the past, it's not us but you guys fail, and they'll bring up FCS, future combat systems, these types of things. They'll say, oh, you just want these open-ended funds to prototype forever, but you never put it in the palm. It's not there in the production or in the procurement. So some, they're like, you don't actually have a justified plan. We can't trust you until that justified plan comes. And so how would you react to some of those views? First of all, not every, I'm not going to defend FCS. So I'll just leave that one. Uh, but I think 
There's a delay because things change so much year to year. And it's, wow, this was so hot, now you're telling me you don't need it. And a lot of the dilemma gets back to the way data is passed to the Hill. And JBooks, which I won't go into the details, but basically that's where all the numbers are. And there's different levels of explanation in the JBooks for different, from different services, for RDT&E, for procurement, for O&M. And staffers will tell you that they have to go to different stacks of paper to try to hook it all together to get a narrative that makes sense. So on one hand, they want to understand the strategic vision and would like it to remain fairly consistent, because that's easier, obviously, whereas the department doesn't want to overcommit in the out years because they don't know what else is going to happen geopolitically, what's going to work, what's not going to work. So it becomes a little bit of gamesmanship. So I think, again, there needs to be more transparency about what the plan is, but we can't predict the future. And that's where the difference, if you look at how industry does budgeting versus how the government does budgeting. Industry, large corporations have to look at out years, but they perhaps look at the risks a little bit more honestly, if you will. They acknowledge, not to say that anything's dishonest about DOD, but it just doesn't get acknowledged because there's a fear of failure, where I think we have to be very honest about that and say what the different pathways programs could have are because you don't know when you're developing something. You don't know what you don't know. And if you find something, you have to have the agility to go with it and field it and test it. Yeah, I would say, and Ellen could speak to this too, as a former CEO, when you give your board of directors a budget that is in out years, everyone around the table, the CEO, the leadership team, the directors know that's a swag. Years two and three have a huge cone of uncertainty. And yet, in the department, we treat the FIDAP, the Future Year Defense Plan, which goes out for four years beyond the current year, as gospel. So that's a completely different perspective yeah. on, and of course, you can change the FIDAP, but the first, the input that starts when you do the budgeting process the subsequent year is what was in the FIDAP. It's not what do you need, what's changed, what was in the FIDAP. And what's different is there's not the frequency and the detail of communication. That's what makes it so hard. And we here have left out the whole situation that DOD is incredibly constrained by OMB and going through the whole executive branch. So there are lots of things that DOD might want to do, yet they don't have total freedom of action. That takes quite a bit of time to get all the passbacks, and then you get into the complications of the way the NSA budget comes into DOD for all the nuclear matters and so forth. So it, it's complex, but I think we need to break it down and give individuals more authority, not just to manage, but to truly lead. Before, I, I definitely want to get to the PBB commission, but before that, I want to- It's a great topic. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to get to one last question first, which it really is like honing in on this idea of capability of record or what a consolidated mm -hmm. portfolio would look like. And Mike brought up the idea that, hey, counter UAS, that's not a, that's not a service thing, right? And of course there is like the Army not, has a counter UAS. Not service specific. Not service Army. specific. No, and it was 
won't bore you with the details, but the idea was everybody was spending money on doing sort of the same thing. So now the Army's the executive agent, or yeah. I can't remember what it's yeah. called, probably knows, executive agent, yeah. But I, I but, guess I want to just, just, let me just add to that point. They were the, appointed the executive agent for assessing, but they don't procure anything. Yeah, yeah, so it's a very so strong recommendation. <laughs> and, so and it still allows for we'll the, see service, how that works the out. service to do anything yeah. they want yeah. if they choose. Yeah. yeah. And I, maybe this, is, this gets to the core of what I wanted to ask, right? Because you mentioned it should be like a stable, like a consistent portfolio funding where you can have multiple lines of effort go on underneath that, but it's at a joint level, right? And so my question is, where does this thing sit? Is, does it sit with some kind of office that sits on top and then they delegate that money to the right program office? Or are you actually sending it down to the program offices and you have joint coordination through boards, committees, other types of structures? Yeah. So first of all, I would not add one more layer in the Pentagon. I think we need to rip a few out. I think that if somebody wants to add a new office, one has to be taken away because it just mushrooms. <laughs> but we have different services for a reason. They have different missions. They have different personalities. They have different talents. They have different focuses. That is healthy and good. However, over time, it's evolved that we really have this multi-domain, interoperable battle, space is contested now. So everything has to be able to talk to one another and we have to understand it. From my point of view, I think we need to have requirements to be able to hook all these things together so that we don't have radios that can't talk and data links that don't talk to one another. That being said, if you have some common interface control requirements, I'll say, I think then the services should get the money and hand it down, and then there should be intervention by exception, just like in industry. What does the corporate layer in industry do? And I look at OSD as the same thing to DOD with the military services being the operating units, like the Army, Navy, Air Force, so forth and the agencies as well. And OSD should only get involved when there is something super high risk, super high dollar, or it affects everybody the same way. So counter UAS is a good example. We all know that drones are a major weapon system now, and we need effective counter systems, and we only have so much money to spend on it. So it's good to coalesce that. But I think that's the way the money should flow. And I think that there should be more discretion. But there has to be accountability through data to have the transparency to see what's going on. Yeah, I think we talked about this before as it related to buying commercial items. So counter UAS or SUAS, AI software, that you could have a executive agent, but they should have full responsibility, not just to recommend. They would get a budget that would be dedicated by Congress, because you know you're going to need that ongoing capability for small drones. They make the decision, building in requirements from the other services for, here's what the department is going to field, and keep up with commercial technology. So I agree, we shouldn't start a layered series of offices, but you have to have that executive agent. We have executive agents for other things. Give them responsibility, give them the budget, have them be the plier for all of DOD of these commercial items, which are not service specific. All right, so Ellen, it, lo it really looks like the PBBE commission, the congressional commission, it's really starting to gear up. It got a little bit of a slow start, but in the last couple of months, I've been seeing a lot of engagement, a lot of things online, and that's really great. So. I just want you to talk about what is the commission's activities and what are you hoping for it? 
Absolutely, and the reason you didn't see much at first is because we were delayed getting our money because of the delay of the budget, <laughs> shockingly. I'm very excited to say we have offices, modest offices in Crystal City. We have a website we have that just launched about a week ago. And if you want it, I even wrote it down for you, pbereform.senate.gov, which brings up a very interesting point in that this is a congressional commission, so all of our employees are now congressional employees, and that took a bit to sort out. Mm -hmm. But we are off and running. We've had 12 meetings now with the full commission. There are 14 commissioners. One dropped out, needs to be replaced. But our first meeting was with the DepSec Def, with Kath Hicks, which was great, where she very clearly gave us her expectations. And we've had listening tours with Hask, Sask, Hackdy, Sackdy, with programmers, with planners, with industry focusing on software companies, really the cutting edge like Palantir, Rebellion, Andrel, as well as a variety of other companies in the sustainment area and others. We have these 10 employees, they're mostly doing research because the law is very specific in terms of certain reports we have to generate. A lot of it's historically looking. We have FFRDCs on contract and we have been reporting out, again, in separate meetings with Hackdy, Sackdy, Sask, and Hask, where there's been a really good amount of dialogue. Because we got a slow start because of the slow um, funding, it looks like now our interim report will be, we have to wait for the bill to come out, but it's probably gonna be in August of 23 with the final report in March of 24 is where we'll end up. We have been very transparent about sending back to the hill and to the building what we're hearing. We're saying we have no recommendations right now because it's way too early for recommendations. However, we're passing along a lot of it. We have a writer on board, so I'm excited because we're very focused on trying to pick the critical and doing something very significant in terms of clear recommendations and not doing small nibbling around the edges, but to really have something substantive. Now, and Mike knows, Mike came Encouraging. and he wanted to just blow the whole thing up, which I empathize with that, but I'm not sure we can. But I think there are a few themes that come out, if you will, I'll just say this quickly and stop. One is the incredible lack of trust and communication between DOD and Congress. There tends to be a lot of spotlights on when budgets get to Congress, what happens, but the whole DMAG process and everything inside the building, there's very little communication, and I think everybody thinks there could be more and why not? So everybody gets so worried about pre-decisional, but I think they hide behind that a little bit. So we're really teasing that out. There's, to carry on that theme, there's incredible inconsistency in the J-books. So we're really having some deep dives on J-books, what could be done. Talk a lot about reprogramming thresholds. We talk a lot about the special authorities that different groups have and why that can't be scaled. 
hearing a lot from people in the building. We went and met with Heidi Shu and Bill LaPlante, which was great. Heard from them about what's the art of the possible. So there is a great diversity of opinion, but I think it's important that the dialogue's going, and there are a lot of other sort of adjunct commissions that have cropped up, which I think is a good thing as well. And basically, where we are right now is we are looking for scenarios, and I reach out to everybody listening here. What we need are examples of where PPBE used in a way that accelerated capability being fielded downrange. Where did the system work? How did people do that? I like to mm -hmm. think about the notion of what I call creative compliance. We're not all pilots. Pilots need to have their checklist and go through everything, but just use what you need to be legal and ethical and move on. We need to get some good examples of how that was done, so perhaps we can replicate that. Just as importantly, we need very concrete examples of where things went sideways. Because without actual scenarios, it is hard to have the proof points to really back up recommended changes or to foot stomp what's right that we need to do. I want to give you guys just a one minute response on this because there's some concern that this is like a once in a generation Goldwater Nichols almost type thing, but it might be too late for the Davidson window 2027. What can we do in the near term to really affect that timeline? What's been really wonderful, there are a number of people out in industry right now who were former staffers. So they realize the lexicon that needs to be used. So when we get back proposal ideas in the right kind of language, that's great. Because again, the commission can say, we're not recommending this, but here's the type of feedback we're getting. Because a lot of the staffers want something that's actionable. This really is the decisive decade. Here we are at an inflection point, and the national security strategy says that. We're talking about integrated deterrence. Not sure what that really means, because that has to be fleshed out. But, but now's the time to get the funding going and flowing so that we can build up the capacity and capability here. Because we flip the switches on, it takes a while to have the plant, the equipment, the tooling. And right now, industry, you can't go to your board and say, hey, we think the department's going to order this in two years. Let's get building. It's just not going to work. Yeah, maybe I can add. So the Davidson window, I don't know if everybody knows that term from Admiral Phil Davidson when he said to the Senate in testimony that he thought the she might move on Taiwan by 2027. And then recently there's a great book, The Danger Zone, coming out basically narrowing that to 2024 to 2027. So if you think that we might have to fight in that time frame, you have to think now about what flexibility you're going to create with the lessons of Ukraine in mind. So you'd want to think about how do I provide some flexibility like the Pacific Deterrence Initiative that Congress has that really can be applied for Taiwan to draw down capability that you'd want to give to Taiwan. Maybe a special line item that you want to create in the budget that allows for material to be shipped there. And maybe including food and medical supplies if you want to envision a blockade. So more scenario planning about what we might need to be doing to defend in the Davidson window, and I think you'd want to build that flexibility in now, meaning we won't have time to wait for the recommendations of the PPBE Commission, put those into place, 
That, that you're talking about the beyond the Davidson window. Yeah. But there are, and I'll tell you, Blinken came out about a week ago, and I think he pulled that timeline forward a little bit. Because we can only develop so much capability and capacity, we have limited dollars, I think we have to remember that we're different from our strategic adversaries in that when we go to fight, we don't fight alone. We fight with mm -hmm. our allies and partners. And right now, geopolitically, Australia is so very important to us. They have leaned forward. They're putting a lot of money out there. They've articulated that they want to develop indigenous capability. So I think when people think about AUKUS, all they think about is nuclear submarines, which is incredibly important. However, there's a lot more to AUKUS. There's AI, there's quantum, there are munitions, there are missiles. There's also all kinds of authorities under INTIB, or the National Technology Innovation Base. I would say part of the way we need to get ready for Xi moving on Taiwan, if that does happen, is really leverage Australia and make sure that DOD and the State Department work together very closely with Congress to make sure we start transferring technology there and get them to manufacture with us. Ellen Lord, Mike Brown, thanks so much for joining us. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.